Hi, welcome to American Library's Dewey Decibel Podcast. I'm your host and American Library's Associate Editor, Phil Moorhart. Thanks for joining us for episode number two. Now, we have a lot planned today, some important interviews, information, and testimonies for you. But uh, before we begin, I just want to thank everybody who's tuned in, streamed, and downloaded our first episode thus far. The, uh, the positive reception, your words, tweets, emails, everything you've sent to us, it's really been incredibly overwhelming, especially so soon out of the gate for us. We're having such a great time with this podcast, and it's really just heartening to see that you are too, so sincerely, thank you. Uh, now, to the business at hand. Um... I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't want to do this episode um, at all. Actually, in fact, no one should want to do an episode such as this. But we have to. We need to. Today on Dewey Decibel, we're going to talk about library security. How can keep our spaces safe and stay safe as librarians and patrons? Library security is a complex, multifaceted issue, and it deals with concerns that carry great impact from large-scale terrible active shooter situations to smaller but no less disconcerting events that often happen on a day-to-day basis. Thankfully, I'm joined today by three people whose stories and expertise can shed light on these issues and provide guidance. Today, we talk to Marianne Jacob, a library aide at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Marianne was in the school during the tragic December 2012 shooting that took the lives of 20 children and six adults. We'll talk about that day and Marianne's subsequent work as a fellow with a gun control advocacy group, Every Town for Gun Safety. We're also joined by Kathleen Moeller Pfeiffer, the director of the New Mexico State Library. Now, Kathleen has instituted active shooter training for librarians in New Mexico, as well as in New Jersey when she was deputy state librarian there. We talk today about active shooter training and what libraries can do to get involved. Finally, we talk to Steve Albrecht, a retired San Diego police officer and an expert on workplace security. Steve is the author of Library Security, Better Communication, Safer Facilities, published by ALA Editions in 2015. Steve and I discuss current security concerns affecting libraries today and much more. We have a lot to talk about today, but first, let's talk about ALA Annual. In less than a month, from June 23rd to 28th specifically, thousands of your colleagues will convene in Orlando, Florida for the 2016 ALA Annual Conference and Exhibition. Now, you can ask anyone who's been to Annual and they can tell you this, this is the place to be. You'll make connections, get the latest news on products, services, tech, and more in the exhibit hall, and you're going to go back to your library with the tools and ideas you need to do your job better. And of course, there's the speakers. Joining us in Orlando this year are Jamie Lee Curtis, Congressman and Civil Rights Pioneer John Lewis, Michael Eric Dyson, Margaret Atwood, Brad Meltzer, and many, many more. Don't miss this, people. Visit uh, alaannual.org to register and to get more information. We'll see you there. On December 14, 2012, 20-year-old Adam Lanza entered Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut and fatally shot 20 school children and six adult staffers before finally turning the gun on himself. It was the deadliest mass shooting at a high school or grade school in U.S. history and the second deadliest mass shooting by a single person in U.S. history after the Virginia Tech shootings in 2007. Mary Ann Jacob is a library aide at Sandy Hook. She was there that morning. To say the experience changed her life would be an understatement. She was kind enough to speak with us about that day and how it led her to become involved with a gun control advocacy group, Every Town for Gun Safety. Can you take us back to that day, take me and our listeners back to that day, back to December 14th, 2012. Um, 
I guess what we'd like to know is how did it begin for you? When when did you realize that something was wrong that morning? So the day was really just beginning for all of us. Um, you know, like most schools, we started our day with the pledge and with a moment of silence. And the, uh, we had a fourth grade class that was starting and our librarian was just beginning um, to teach the day's lesson. We had 19 fourth graders with us, as I recall. And it, it was just a few minutes later when I was sitting at my desk when I heard some noises come over the intercom. And um, sort of as a little aside, on Friday mornings, the, the women in our office and our principal would have what they called Dance Party Friday, and they'd sort of rejoice that it was the end of the week and have a little fun moment after school started. And I thought um, in their Friday morning celebration that maybe somebody had hit the intercom button because there was a lot of weird, you know, banging and shuffling noises. So I walked over to the phone, I picked up the phone, and unbeknownst to me from under her desk, one of the secretaries yelled, they're shooting. Um, and I realized at that moment that what I'd been hearing is gunshots and the beginning of the break into the building. So I hung up the phone and I yelled over to Yvonne, who was partway across the library, to lock down. And I went out in the hallway. There was two classrooms right across from us. And I yelled into one of the classroom doors and slammed her door shut and came back. And when I came back in the library, Yvonne had ushered the kids over to a space on the wall along the hallway where we had been trained to gather them, and we waited. And um, we were listening to gunshot after gunshot, you know, bam, 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 bam. I mean, it just went on and on and on. Um, we were trying to keep the kids calm and quiet. You know, we were scared to death. We had no idea what was going on. And, you know, a couple of minutes went by, and I don't really know how much time, and one of the doors opened the library, and the barrel of a gun came around the corner. And I, you know, we were paralyzed. Yvonne and I sort of looked up, and almost immediately the face of one of the local Newtown sergeants came around the corner. And he sort of looked at us like, are you okay? And put his finger to his mouth like, you know, be quiet, and turned around and went back out. And we had thought we had locked all the doors and realized at that time that one of the many doors in the library wasn't locking. So on our hands and knees, we ushered the kids into a secure, more secure area, which was where our servers were, like in a back room, kind of like a closety workroom area. And we closed the door and put up the, put a file cabinet up against the door and waited. And, and unfortunately, because of there was a servers in the room and we were locked in this back room, we couldn't hear anything from that point in, and so we had no idea what was going on outside. Um, and, you know, some time went by. You know, it was interesting because one of the adults in the room had a phone, but the service was very bad, and we were trying to, you know, reach to people on the outside to, number one, find out what was going on, and number two, to let people we knew know we were okay. Um, my kids were both in the high school at the time, at Newtown High School, watching um, what was going on on televisions and on their phones, um, texting me, but my phone was on my desk saying, Mom, Mom, are you okay? And, you know, they had no idea if I was okay or not. Um, and after some period of time, almost an hour went by, um, we heard some banging on the door and an officer put his, um, they identified themselves as an officer and he put his badge under the door and we pushed the file cabinet out of the way. And, you know, standing there was, you know, a whole group of cops in riot gear, you know, something that, you know, fourth grade kids in Newtown, Connecticut had never seen before. And that was really probably the scariest part for them. We were run out of the building 
literally running with, you know, holding hands with each other and with cops out to the yard. And, and we came out to the chaos that everyone in the country saw on TV, you know, helicopters flying overhead, cars everywhere, and, and ran down to the firehouse, which was at the end of our driveway, and, you know, where parents were trying to figure out where their kids were, and, you know, it was just complete chaos. Um, you know, there's sirens and ambulances and parents frantically looking for their kids. And right around that time, the teachers who were already there had started lining kids up by classroom. It became very apparent to us pretty much right away that there were almost two full classes missing, um, teachers and kids. And none of us really knew at the time that some kids had escaped and weren't either in the building anymore or at the firehouse but were missing. And and of course, we had no idea how many children and adults had died, but um, you know eventually, most of the kids got matched up with the parents until the ones that were left were told that their kids weren't coming out anymore and The rest of us got home somehow. I don't even recall that day how I got home. A colleague must have brought me home because our cars were all part of the crime scene, and we couldn't get to any of our stuff and you know. Media descended immediately. You know, you couldn't even go outside. You couldn't go to the grocery store without media being around. You know, the other children in the community, including my own high schoolers, couldn't leave the house. There was no place safe for them to go. It was nice. It was really good for them, actually, when uh, a couple of days later in the next week, I don't remember how long it was, when the schools opened up again, the other schools, because it gave them a safe place to go to be with their friends and be with school counselors and and not and, and be out of their house and not because you couldn't turn on the TV you couldn't you just couldn't go anywhere it was really difficult um, and you know I think that the story that people don't hear is how you know the true heroes of that day were you know three of my colleagues who ran out of a meeting and tried to take down the shooter running towards him two of them lost their lives that day and our principal Don Hawksprung and our school psychologist, Mary Sherlock, and the third one, who was our lead teacher, um, escaped after being shot several times and was able to crawl back into a room and hide until the shooting was over. You said that you and, when you were in the back server room, you were there for about an hour. How were the kids, like their demeanor? What did you do to, what did you say to them during that time? Were they aware of what was going on? Um, I don't, you know, we... They asked us what was going on and, um, you know, is this a drill? What's going on? We said, we don't, we don't know what's going on. We don't know if it's a drill or not. Our job is to stay here and remain quiet. Um, coincidentally, there was some, um, supplies in the room, crayons and pencils and stuff, and we had the kids do some drawing and coloring and, you know, some kids were fooling around and some kids were scared. You know, it was all over the place. And I, I think there's, there was just nothing in their experience to, that, that that what was going on would actually enter their minds. So while I think they were scared, it was clearly not normal. Yeah. I don't think they, you know, there, there was just nothing in their basis of experiences, you know, nine or two, whatever age they are, and fourth, they, they, they just had no idea what was going on. Now, um, now let's let's move forward to today and in, in, in your life now. Now you're working or you're a fellow at Every Town for Gun Safety. Um, let's talk a bit more about that organization and and I guess specifically, how did you become involved with them? Well, so, you know, just to kind of bring the story forward a little bit, you know, we returned back to a borrowed school um, in the next town next to us in Monroe, where we still are today. 
um, after Christmas. And, and really most of us turned inward and focused on the kids we had left. You know, it, it was important for us to kind of rebuild our school and our community and, and, and really focus inward. And, and, and we spent a lot of time doing that and kind of pushed the outside world away in many ways. Um, it wasn't for me until about 16 months late, 16 months later when the Isla Vista shooting happened in California. Mm-hmm. And I heard a gentleman named Richard Martinez, you know, cry and scream on, on on national television with anger about why his son had died and how wrong it was. And he coined the phrase that has become very popular, not one more, at that time. And it really, at that time, I think I must have been ready. You know, I didn't lose a child or sibling to gun violence like so many other people did. But, you know, I was ready to stand up and you know, take my place among the people who are trying to fight for change. So I went in Monday morning and to another colleague's classroom and asked if she was ready to do something as well, because she and I had talked in the past and I knew that she was equally frustrated with what was going on in the country. And that's how SHS Educators for Gun Sense was born, which was how we started. And that was about 40 of us from Sandy Hook School. We formed a group and we you know, we slowly began to take action. We wrote letters. We worked with the teachers' union. We signed up gun sense voters. We uh, did some outreach to the media. We were on CBS Sunday morning. We did some marches. You know, everybody kind of found things that worked for them. And one of those things was teaming up with a variety of people who had gotten involved with Every Town. So Every Town is, um, is the gun violence prevention um, um, organization that was started by Michael Bloomberg. It was, it's really a combination of what was originally Mayors Against Illegal Guns and another organization started by uh, a woman after 1214 called Moms Demand Action. So those two organizations together have really formed um, what is now known as Everytown and Moms Demand Action. And one of the things they do is work with survivors to be what they call engagement leads to go out to the community and be fellows and really talk about what's going on in the country and why gun violence prevention is so important and, and why people should get involved. Now, this uh, this episode is about library security, and mm-hmm. uh, I think our listeners and librarians would like to know your thoughts on this. Um, uh, based on your experiences and, and all of your work um, to present with every town, God forbid a library or librarian or anyone should find themselves in a similar situation, um, what would you recommend they do? Well, you know, I think one of the things that we learned about our building was that despite the fact that we practiced drills, we really weren't prepared for the kind of um, the kind of uh, attack that we suffered from. So, um, for instance, in our library where there were four or five sets of doors, you had to go outside in the hallway to lock all the doors, which isn't, isn't practical if you're in an emergency situation. So really understanding how your building works and making sure you know how to secure your space, making sure you know where your patrons should go if there is an emergency. You know, all those things, again, are common sense taking care of the people whose lives that you're responsible for. Um, I think also, you know, Almost everybody these days has put more uh, more attention to security, um, you know, as a whole. And you know, do do we pay attention to who's coming and going in our buildings? Do we 
Um, do we support or not? Do we live in a community that supports open carry? Do we allow people to open carry weapons in in our in our buildings? And has that been addressed? Do we have a policy about that? So you know, really thinking ahead of time about all of those things, so you understand what the policies are, the practices are, are an important step for everyone to take to keep themselves safe. Thank you very much, Marianne. Uh, we really appreciate you taking some time to speak with us today. It's 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 been an excellent conversation, and um, I think that our our listeners find great value in everything you've done. Um, once again, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I think, you know, in closing, if, I'm, if I could say one other thing, I just, you know, I think everybody thinks that something like this would never happen to them. And they're horrified when they see it on TV every time it happens. And then it does happen in a community just like yours. So, you know, if people don't know what to do, they should they should get involved and do something. Write your state legislator, write your senators, write to the people who represent you. And, and really think about ways that you can help promote gun violence prevention and save lives. This is a, this is not a political issue. This is a safety issue. 33,000 Americans a year die. It's an epidemic. If, if, if 33,000 Americans were dying from anything else, you know, we, we'd have, you know, everybody in the country trying to solve this problem. So let's try to be part of the solution and, and, and really fix it. Absolutely. I mean, the, the numbers are, they're staggering. It's a 91 Americans are killed each day from, Mm-hmm. Gun violence, it's, it's, it's incredible. I, I yeah. encourage everyone to go to everytown.org to learn more. There's, you can learn more about um, the group, the efforts, and um, how you can get involved. So everyone, please yeah, check that out. If you, have, if you have your phone in your hand, you can actually text the word JOIN to 64433, and that will immediately get you on the Everytown sort of communications list, and that will give you great ways to get involved. June 2nd is Wear Orange Day. It's National Gun Violence Awareness Day, so I hope you all participate in your community and take time to find out what you can do. Excellent. Thank you very much, Marianne. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That was Marianne Jacob from Sandy Hook Elementary School in Everytown for Gun Safety. I really can't thank her enough for sharing her story and her work with us today. You can visit everytown.org for more information and to get involved. Navigating the home video market can be a daunting task. Hundreds of DVDs, Blu-ray discs, and digital-only films are released each month. Now, if you're a librarian tasked with stocking your branch with the latest films for your patrons, or just a movie buff looking to add to your home collection, you need is your guide a trusted source with its pulse on the market and the industry. Video Librarian Magazine is that source. Video Librarian is a video review magazine for public, school, academic, and special libraries, as well as for film fans who are interested in a wider variety of films that are found on the average video store or online outlet. Written by Video Librarian staff, librarians, teachers, and film critics, the magazine offers over 200 reviews each issue. Now, full disclosure, in addition to my role as Associate Editor of American Libraries, I'm uh, also a freelance film critic for Video Librarian Magazine. Now, am I biased? Yeah, sure, maybe a little bit, but um, I'll say this. If you've ever picked up a copy of Video Librarian and just skinned its pages, you can't help be wowed by the volume and depth of its content. Every kind of film imaginable can be found reviewed in its pages. Seriously, there's something for everybody. It's a must read. Visit videolibrarian.com to learn more. Kathleen Moeller Pfeiffer is director of the State Library of New Mexico. Now, last year, when she was deputy State Librarian of New Jersey, she wrote a fascinating story for American Libraries about that state's efforts to provide active shooter training to its librarians. 
So naturally, when this episode came up, we knew we had to talk to Kathleen about her work then, what she's doing now in New Jersey, and to discuss any recommendations that she might have to libraries looking to set their own active shooter training program. When you were at uh, the the um, Deputy State Librarian for New Jersey, um, you conducted this uh, active, active shooter training programs in four libraries, uh, four public libraries. Now, what uh, prompted you to institute this program, these programs? Well, Phil, the New Jersey State Library is affiliated with Thomas Edison University, and Thomas Edison University held this active shooter training for all of the staff of their institution, ours. And after I attended it, I realized that libraries are one of the most completely accessible public institutions and therefore could be a prime target for such a tragedy. The particular uh, training program group that you chose to use, KML Security Associates, um, mm -hmm. why did you choose that particular organization? Well, they actually were the same group of trainers that Thomas Edison State University brought in for us. They were all former state troopers in New Jersey as well as having had some expertise and experience with both Homeland Security and emergency management agencies. And I found that when I attended the Thomas Edison um, University training, that they were very willing to be interactive with their audience. So it wasn't just a lecture sort of situation. They really did take a lot of questions from the audience. They really were very professional, very experienced in, in this, having uh, one of the gentlemen had some ties to the 9-11 tragedy and had had uh, emergency response in his background. So they really, uh, I think, put people quite at ease about asking questions, and also people came out of the session feeling much more comfortable or confident that they could react appropriately in, in case of an active shooter. Okay, now can you can you elaborate a little bit on that, um, the sessions themselves, what um, what uh, Camelot um, brought to the New Jersey libraries, the librarians that attended the sessions? Was it, um, you said, you mentioned the lecture, what, was there, was there um, an interactive um, component to it? I know some training, training organizations do something along those lines. Well, well, some of them do. Ours was a half-day session for librarians throughout the state, so it wasn't uh, like one library doing it for their staff and being able to be closed and maybe reenacting an active shooter situation. But what they were able to do, I think the biggest thing they were able to do is to expose librarians to the idea that in this very chaotic situation of an active shooter, that you take care of yourself first. And that's perhaps somewhat of a foreign concept to librarians. We're all very used to uh, fire drills or any sort of training like that, and we're always taking care of our patrons. And they said in a case of an active shooter that really you can't wait for people to collect their belongings, if you will, or, or finish whatever they're doing, that everybody gets out as quickly as possible. Because when the police would arrive, it's, a, a, again, very uh, uncertain situation. And if you're still in the building, you might be considered to be part of that uh, active shooter as opposed to being a um, uh, someone who is uh, a potential victim for that. So they really want everybody out of the building and far away from the building so they can just deal with the person or people who are in the building. And uh, that, I think that was really... Um, a new awareness for librarians. 
What, uh, what was the reception? What kind of reception did uh, the training program receive uh, from the librarians um, who took the program? Um, and do, did you get any type of feedback from them? Well, I was really amazed. Uh, I had set up four half-day sessions across the state with a maximum attendance of 50 staff at each program. Now, there were some library staff, a great many, who called or emailed to ask about additional sessions that we schedule. So we scheduled three more throughout the state with a total attendance of over 300 people. There were 50 people allowed at each one, and we did have a, a total of seven. The feedback we received was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, they learned techniques that would potentially help save lives and assist the responding officers in their work. And one area that was interesting that doesn't usually happen in library workshops is it wasn't so much the directors coming, but they were sending their frontline staff, their circulation staff, their reference staff, in some cases their custodians or their janitors, their security guards. So it was a very different. It wasn't an all-librarian uh, meeting. They sent the people who would most likely be put in that situation first. In the piece that you wrote for us um, last June, you, you mentioned other libraries that are that um, that did conduct similar training. Jacksonville, Florida. There's the Midwest mm -hmm. Collaborative um, uh, Collaborative, uh, Collaborative Library Services Group. Uh, there was um, Scott County, Kentucky. What other what kind of advice would you have for any other libraries that uh, well, might be interested in conducting an active shooter program? Um, I guess um, any advice you can give them as far as um, choosing a group, preparing your staff, any any, any type of words of, of wisdom w would be awesome. Well, since I've been in New Mexico, I have conducted a similar half-day program for all the staff at the New Mexico State Library. I was fortunate that the Santa Fe Police Department here has a SWAT uh, a team emergency response unit that is charged with conducting such training free of charge to agencies who request it. In terms of conducting this training, I would definitely recommend it. There are incidents like this at least every month across the nation, and why wait until uh, a tragedy happens before you train people how to respond? Mm -hmm. If I could, I would more closely have replicated the program done in Scott County, Kentucky, where the local police department conducted a simulation of an active shooter event and produced a video of the simulation. That would really have helped, uh, I think, bring it home even more what an active shooter situation is like. And then having the video of the simulation would help staff who come in after you've done this training to be able to view it and to be trained that way. So I think the Scott County model was really quite well done. You mentioned that you you have um, conducted similar training in New Mexico. Um, is, is, is that ongoing? No, this is just for the state library staff to begin with, but I'm very interested in conducting similar training for New Mexico libraries. However, given the great distances that staff must travel to attend in-person workshops, I will probably explore holding the program at the annual conference, which comes about in November this year, or perhaps videotaping a program and distributing it via our website. It isn't quite as realistic in New Mexico to have in-person programs very often, uh, but I certainly do believe that the people here should be prepared, trained, uh, be able to have a, a calmer approach if that's possible to any such situation and to know what the protocol is, what the police expectations are, security expectations are. 
Well, thank you so much, Kathleen. It's been great talking to you. And um, for our listeners out there, the, the, the story that, you, that we've been referencing is called Libraries Invest in Active Shooter Training. You can find it at AmericanLibraries.org. It was from uh, June 8th of last year, 2015. I highly recommend it. There's uh, details on uh, Kathleen's efforts in uh, New Jersey as well as the other libraries, and uh, you should definitely check that out. Thanks again, Kathleen. It's been great talking to you. You're welcome, Phil. Again, many thanks to Kathleen Moore-Pfeiffer, the director of the State Library of New Mexico, for speaking with us today. She's really doing incredible, good, important work. You can find the story on active shooter training that Kathleen and I referred to in our talk at AmericanLibraries.org. Also, link to it on our Twitter and Facebook pages. Please, please check it out. And now, let's talk about Hoopla. So let's talk about Hoopla, okay? Hoopla, really. How can you not talk about Hoopla? It has that perfect name, Hoopla kind of bubbles off the tongue. It's a name that you enjoy saying. It's a name that you remember, Hoopla. But what is it? Hoopla is a revolutionary digital service that brings hundreds of thousands of movies, music albums, audiobooks, and more to your library. From Hollywood blockbusters and best-selling artists, and not just the hits, you also get the niche and hard-to-find titles as well. Really, you'll find everything you need on Hoopla. Now, Hoopla Digital can be a part of everyday life for everybody, and today that includes kids with a new Hoopla Kids Mode setting. Hoopla Kids Mode is a gateway to a multi-format family digital media experience. All of Hoopla content, books, video, music, all of it's been selected and brought together in one place to give kids and families an environment where young minds can explore and discover the world around them safely through media. So please, Check out the Hoopla Kids mode on Hoopla, because you know, as they say, it's a Hoopla happy place for everybody. Visit HooplaDigital.com today for more information. Steve Albrecht is a one-man security task force. A retired San Diego police officer, he's internationally known for his consulting, writing, and training work in workplace and school violence prevention. Uh, he's also the host of uh, the podcast Crime Time with Steve Albrecht and the author of 17 books on related topics, including Library Security, Better Communication, Safer Facilities, which was published by ALA Editions last year. So naturally, when this episode came up, we had to talk to Steve to get his thoughts on security issues facing libraries today and to get his tips on what libraries can do to keep themselves safe on a day-to-day -day basis. What is the, um, in, in, in your opinion, what's the most pressing issue, security issue facing libraries today? One of the things I see most often in libraries is what I call the homeless takeover. And here we have homeless people, sometimes mentally ill, oftentimes coming in in groups, and they kind of take over a portion of the library. They come in, they set up camp, um, they have all their belongings around, and they don't really use the library. Um, but they make other people feel afraid. There's some intimidation going on there. Folks are afraid to come around that part of the library. And as a result, I think sometimes it paralyzes the staff. They're not always sure what to say or what to do. They're uncomfortable questioning these folks about what they're doing. They're uncomfortable having contact with them. So as a result, they leave them alone, and that just makes the problem worse. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you know, when most people think of security issues immediately, they think of um, some broader, larger threat, like, say, an active shooter situation or something. But, um, yeah, there are, there are these um, smaller, more benign, but not less threatening situations that uh, librarians and people in public service have to think about. Um, what, um, what, what type of immediate steps can a library, what do you recommend for a library and a librarian staff to do in those, in those situations? How do you, um, what, uh, what's the best way to deal with uh, those type of situations, um, in your opinion? 
I, I mentioned it in the book. I, I talked about the idea of liaison relationships with uh, homeless advocacy groups and also social services and behavioral health for that particular county. So where your library is located, there is somebody that has um, responsibility for your facility, either from a law enforcement perspective, and sometimes they have homeless outreach teams. We have one of those for the police department in San Diego. And, and also any kind of meetings or discussions that you can start to initiate, especially at the library leadership level, with those homeless advocacy groups, whether it's private sector like you know, Catholic Charities or St. Vincent de Paul or, or Salvation Army or, or public entities that are, that are responsible for homeless outreach, to, to start having some meetings and say, help us put a handle on this situation, help us get a fence around some of these behavioral concerns and give us some, some tips as to what to do. What I oftentimes see is, is these types of issues make library staff, especially frontline staff, really kind of doubt their skill set and, and doubt their communication skills. And as a result, it, it sort of creates a vicious circle where they, they don't want to engage with this population, which can be high risk. It can be confrontive. You know, there's very cyclical behavior in, in, in almost people in terms of their substance abuse use and their mental health issues, and they can be very problematic. Certainly not all homeless people are dangerous and not all of them are a problem, but the ones that impact the business in a negative way, those are the ones we have to address. Yeah, uh, it's one, something that um, was really interesting in, in your book, Library Security, um, the notion of the howlers versus the hunters. And um, I guess the, the, those, the homeless population, your, your specific one you're speaking of, definitely would fall into kind of like, I guess, maybe a howler situation or, or, or in that more um, – benign, challenging patron type of situation. Um, but you do have, on the flip side of that, the hunter situation. Um, when should, when do you recommend, when should a library or library staff bring the authorities in? What, um, what is the breaking point in your opinion? One of the things I see in, in, for library people is that the response by the police is sometimes an afterthought. And so one of my big deciding lines as to whether or not to call the police or to take some kind of action is whether or not staff gets assaulted. And I've seen staff being assaulted by somebody, you know, a problematic patron, an entitled patron, an angry patron. They put hands on this person, they shove them or they push them or they do something. That's got to be a call to the police. And if it's not, then the message is it's okay. And, and we don't want patrons to think they can ever put hands on staff. And sometimes I see, you know, a small number of people that can be very entitled, very uh, angry, and have this sense of, you know, I pay your salary and this is my library and you can't tell me what to do. A small number of people can kind of paralyze the library. A small number can kind of take over the library where a, a small group of people that are problematic patrons can be quite difficult. And I, I feel like oftentimes the staff gets away from using the code of conduct and using the policies of a safe library use because they're intimidated by this very small population. So so 2% of the, the patrons paralyze the other 98% of the library. Interesting. Um, now, what should libraries not do when it comes to security measures? I know there's there's many um, things that they can do, but what what um, I guess would be I guess kind of anti best practices. What what are some common things that that library librarians library staff might do that they should not be doing? I think sometimes uh, in our response for security, we're a little overzealous for policies and procedures. I, I tend to read codes of conduct, which really sound quite quite authoritative and don't do this, don't do that. I think code of conduct should be written in a way that's much more friendly and, and not so legalese, but much more user-friendly for the for the patrons. I think we can overreact. Sometimes I see um, libraries bring in private security guards, and, and sometimes in their zeal to be vigorous in the work that they do, they overreact and end up hassling patrons and things like that. So there's an over-response that, that is possible sometimes. And I think the flip side of that is is – 
sometimes libraries are waiting for the big event before they do something related to security. And the big event may be, you know, somebody with a weapon or somebody that gets in a fight inside the facility. And I always say you don't have to wait for the big event to make small changes over a span of time. So I guess in answer to your question, overreacting is one perspective and then underreacting is another. Yeah, it, it, it's a fine line. You really have to walk um, between creating an environment where a, a, a positive learning environment uh, where you can enjoy the library or or a almost um, a too strict, almost a police state. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a fine line there. Um, thanks so much, Steve, for, for speaking with us today. That's all we have time for. Um, uh, it's, it's been a great pleasure, and I really appreciate it. Your book, Library Security, Better Communication, Safer Facilities, is, is a must-read, in my opinion. Thanks very much, Phil. Good to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks again to Steve Albrecht. It's always a pleasure speaking with him. Please visit his website, drstevealbrecht.com, for more information about his work, his books, everything. Uh, you can find his book, Library Security, Better Communication, Safer Facilities, online at the ALA Store. That's www.alastore.ala.org. And uh, Steve's podcast, Crime Time with Steve Albrecht, you can find that on SoundCloud. We'll uh, have links to both of those on our Facebook and Twitter pages, so check there for more. That wraps episode two of American Library's Dewey Decibel Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, today was intense. We had some intense discussions, but they were important. They were vital. So thank you for joining us. Um, come back next month as we switch gears a bit and tackle something a little bit lighter. Uh, we're going to talk about the Andrew Carnegie Medals for Excellence in Fiction and Nonfiction. I'll be talking to Nancy Pearl. She is the uh, chair of this year's Carnegie Medal Selection Committee. She's also a librarian, author, and literary critic. And I'm going to talk to the uh, two winners of the 2016 Carnegie Medals. That's authors Viet Tang Nguyen and Sally Mann. So please join us. It'll be a lot of fun. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, show ideas, fan mail, hate mail, anything at all you're willing to say, shoot us an email at deweydecibel at ala.org. You can also find us on Twitter now. It's at, at Dewey Decibel. Or you can leave a comment on American Library's page on Facebook. So you can find us everywhere on the web. Um, I look forward to hearing from all of you. Um, also, for you SoundCloud listeners, we're now on iTunes. So we're everywhere, like I said. Thanks once again. I'm Phil Moorhart from American Libraries Magazine, and this has been American Libraries' Dewey Decibel Podcast. This is not a political issue. This is a safety issue. 33,000 Americans a year die. It's an epidemic.